Welcome to Teach Em Up, the podcast about teaching and learning. Today, we are talking with Dr. Mark Sims about the science of teaching and best teaching practices. Mark, how you doing? I'm doing well, Nick. Awesome. Um, and Mark is the principal here at San Marin High School. Um, so Mark, as we start, before we get into all of the intricacies of teaching, mm-hmm. how did you get into education? And then what precipitated your shift from teaching into being a principal? Okay. so. One thing I found in, in, in high school that I enjoyed English, and um, there was a teacher, Doc Brown, who was my senior English teacher, mm-hmm. and he really, I think, turned me on to the approach of teaching and learning English. So I didn't know what I wanted to do out of high school. I went to community college, played basketball, and then started working in the public school system as a campus safety. I did a variety of different things within the classified sector. And um, Dr. Kent Beckler, um, who was a uh, former assistant superintendent, I believe was assistant superintendent of, of the year in the state of California, and, and Dr. Hess, mm-hmm. both pulled me aside and said, you know, you need to get back into school full time. And um, I ended up going to Fresno Pacific. I got my bachelor's in English. So it was just something that I felt English was something that I enjoyed. It was mm-hmm. one thing I was fairly good at. Um, I was exposed to the public education system and some of the benefits of that from uh, health and welfare benefits to I wanted to coach basketball as well. Uh So what could I do where I could do all of those things? And my first year uh, teaching was was really a disaster. I would have been a (laughs) non-reelect as I look back at my practices. But uh, my second year, I uh, worked with a sixth grade team. We were in a villages, so we rotated in groups of students to four different teachers. And Mm -hmm. they taught me a lot about building relationships with students, preparation, and really being thoughtful in how you go about doing business. And I've never forgot that group of teachers on that preparation. And we met every Sunday for about three hours. We talked about students. We talked about how to teach students, what would work, what didn't work. And just that idea of... You know, motivating students, being prepared, thinking deeply about what you want to do, that you really make a lot of things intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of got me into it. So I kind of fell backwards into it. Yet once I got into it, I was surrounded by very good people um, to help me as a teacher. And those same very people that got me into teaching, it was kind of like the natural progression as you teach. And you go into school site leader leadership huh. because as a teacher, you are a leader as well. You lead students. Your next step is you go into site administration to help lead students and lead teachers. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of that's what everybody did. Those are the people I think I looked up to. Those are the people that kind of pushed me into public education. And if they're doing it, well, this must be my next step as well. And that's what got me into to public school uh, administration. I think the different route that I took was that uh, I got some advice from somebody who's really been a mentor and a father figure uh, to me, who also happened to be a coach and and happened to be a school administrator. He said, Uh I had an opportunity to go to a low socioeconomic, um, uh, large, uh, it was 100% Hispanic Latino population at the time. It was a struggling school. And his advice was, that represents public education in California more than where you've been. Because I taught in a high socioeconomic, primarily Caucasian, ample money school. Uh Um, That will prepare you better for being a leader. Mm. Um, And that's why I took that jump. And and for the most part, until I came to San Marin, all my uh, educational um, administrative experience has been in predominantly higher poverty, 
um, largely uh, Latinx, um, large EL populations. And so San Maroon was a very unique experience for me. And I think I made the conscious decision of I want to try something more like where I started. Uh -huh. So I've really rounded out my my administrative experiences. Nice. Uh, it seems like so many great teachers come into teaching with some kind of like backwards reasoning for it. Like like you, I kind of got into teaching because I wanted to coach. Um, mm -hmm. And then I coached for a few years and was like, man, teaching and coaching at the same time is really hard. And it seems like teaching is the one that I'm actually more drawn to. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of sucked me in. I, I think that coaching, teaching and coaching, it, it is so similar. There are so many crossovers. Mm -hmm. I don't pick, like as a coach, I pick my team. Mm -hmm. I don't pick my students, but that's what makes it so much more valuable. Mm -hmm. The energy you get to spend to not only motivating students, but seeing students that you may not have wanted, like you want this player so you can win, um, excel, mm -hmm. to get better. Yep. And I think the most positive things I've 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 received is when I get those letters from former students. I got one last year, and he's now a teacher out in Redlands and said, you know, you really had a, a large influence in me. You told me I was a great writer. You told me I was a great thinker to challenge myself. And I had lost contact with him for a good 15, 16 years. Oh, and now wow. he's teaching um, out in Redlands, California. So those have meant a lot to me because I felt my role as a teacher uh, was one to motivate them and turn them on to the subject and then have high expectations for them and really pull students aside who may not have been pulled aside to say you're really super brilliant and trust in your skills, trust in yourself because you can go places. So That's awesome. That's spectacular. Um, okay, so one of the things that I really admire about you as a school leader and as a principal is um, you seem to, A, have a tremendous focus on teaching and learning uh, like you see the goal of a school is like we should be focused on best instructional practices, we should be focused on student learning first, and then everything else second. Um, and another thing that I really admire is that you really take leading by example seriously. Um, so like there are a bunch of subtle things that I have noticed and picked up on. Um, for example, this year we're having some construction on campus. Uh, parking has been kind of thrown out of whack. Uh, and so we shifted all of the teachers into one corner lot um, and there is one spot, like one staff member couldn't get a spot in the normal teacher parking zone. Uh, and so you took that single spot that is the furthest from your office uh, and puts you in with all this other student parking. Um, you know, I've seen your car here Saturday and Sunday, like you're putting in more hours probably than anybody else. Um, is there an intentionality to making those kind of decisions? Are you thoughtful about leading by example? Or am I just noticing that you're a selfless person? <laughs> uh, that's a hard one to answer. Uh, I think some of it is intentional and some of it is just trying to, to, to be selfless. Um, teaching is hard mm -hmm. when you do it right. It, it is exhausting and it is draining. And I think that um, so is school side administration, so is being uh, a principal. Um, and I come on the weekends because I have to try to keep up. It is a really exhausting um, profession. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of teaching and learning, I still feel very strongly, and I think I'm at odds sometimes with others, when I think the most important thing we do is teaching and learning. Teaching is not only academic content. It is teaching people to be better decision makers, be thoughtful, be kind, be reflective. Um, and to lead, 
mm -hmm. need to teach our students to be leaders. Um, and, and I think that the education, especially public education, has been so many distractors. It's always coming out of a, uh, on attack. So if we just focus on teaching and learning, and keep that at the forefront, everything else will fall into place. Mm -hmm. Have high expectations for students, be consistent with the practices you have, um, develop relationships, um, be thoughtful. Um, the school will be successful, and you'll put those things into place. Change teaching based on conversations I have on the data we see. So that's what I think is important, and I stick to it. And um, I'm going to try to stick to it until I no longer do what I do. Yeah. So I really appreciate that emphasis because I feel like, um, I mean, for a long time, I've kind of gone on the philosophy like, well, like teaching is not a business. Like we don't have a product, but we really do have a product. It's just that our product is the best possible people that we can put out into the world. You nailed it. Um, like we take in eighth graders uh, who are in a hopefully okay point in their life, but they're coming out of middle school and middle mm -hmm. school sucks. Yep. Um, that's a rough time of life. Very difficult. Uh, and we try to build their skill set, make them the kindest, most positive leader, um, you know, s academically strong um, and socially strong and conscious and able to take care of others, people that we possibly can as they move on to their next steps. Yeah, I had an interesting conversation my, in, in my master's program uh, one of my professors was a, it was like a prison school. It was one of the camps. Mm -hmm. And he broke down some of the budget. He said, you can take care of teaching and educating and teach and, and, and helping students learn to be the best possible person they can be, or you can put all that money in prison. And it's a far better investment to invest in young people during high school, middle to high school, to help them develop those skills and be better people than it is to put it on that back end. So I've never really forgot that. He was, he was a brilliant teacher and a very powerful man when it came to influence, I think, my thought on what we need to do in public uh, public schools. Nice. Um, okay, so our main topic today is what I'm going to call the science of teaching. All right. Like research-based best teaching practices. Um, and one of the things that I really appreciate, you've been at San Marin, this is your third year now, mm -hmm. so you've been at San Marin for two full years. Yep. And when you first came in, um, one of the things that I really appreciated is that you had a focus on teaching and learning and you had some really explicit ways that we were able to focus on teaching and learning, like specific strategies that didn't, weren't content strategies, like they weren't just for an English teacher mm -hmm. or just for a math teacher, but things that help every student learn better. Um, so I was hoping we could go through some of those like yeah. research-based practices and I get the feeling that they are really research-based because another thing that you do is you give uh, your staff, here's what's coming up in educational research in the last week or two. Um, so you take a look at like the research from education and you say, okay, these are articles that are interesting and here's what it says about how you can teach English yeah. learners to develop their vocabulary. Or here's what it says about math strategies and how to help high-level learners go further in math. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I'm guessing that that's where a lot of this comes from. Yeah. Uh, Kim Marshall in the Marshall Memo, it's an it's a email I receive. Kim Marshall basically compiles all sorts of articles from business magazines, from educational journals, 
and anything that's tied into kind of where education is going from the, the most brilliant minds. So I kind of go through that and um, look at one or two things to share. He gave me permission to share one or two, uh-huh. to not to share the entire memo because of copyright. But um, that's kind of what I've done to, to keep up because it's so hard in the, in the work we do. He's retired, but so hard in the work that we do to read all those things that come in because we fall so so far behind. So yeah, those are one of the things I think I've leaned on uh, Hattie and Marzano quite a bit and mm-hmm. taken bits and pieces and, and thrown things together to try to create some of it my own and some borrowed from other people. So yeah. Nice. Okay, so we're going to go through. Yeah. Um, I've got 11 points of emphasis here. Um, I think 10 came directly from you, and Ooh. then a, the 11th one was one that kind of as a staff is a common yeah. term that we're using. Um, okay, so our first point of emphasis in teaching is cell phone caddies. Mm-hmm. Um, so a cell phone caddy, is, I think this one didn't come from you, <laughs> no, because your didn't. first reaction, and I do appreciate this, yeah. um, was like, I don't think this is going to work, and I don't think we should do it, and it's just going to create conflict. Um, yep. And... You are great at speaking your mind and being honest about uh, like what you are good at and your areas of growth, um, and you model that really, really well. So a cell phone caddy is effectively one of those calculator caddies mm-hmm. or shoe holders mm-hmm. that you might stick on the back of a closet door. Yep. Um, they have numbers on them up to 42 in yep. most cases. Um, and Every teacher has one of these cell phone caddies in their classroom. Uh, I take my students' names for each period and just paper clip them onto each slot of the caddy. Mm-hmm. And the way that we take attendance is students come into class, check their cell phone in at the very beginning of class. I keep mine at the very front of my classroom right. so that students can't grab it on, like, on their way out the door mm-hmm. or in the door and to minimize any possibility of theft. So that it's front with the teacher. Um, students check them in. If they need to use them for academic purposes, then they can choose to check them back out with teacher permission. Mm-hmm. If they don't need to use them for academic purposes, their phone stays checked in. And for students who don't have cell phones, uh, we have some wood blocks, and they can pick up a wood block and check the wood block in instead. Mm-hmm. So I remember that conversation well. It came from ILT, the leadership team, uh, talking about all the distractions of the cell phones. And and, um, my attitude was, I think it's a waste of money. I don't think it's just tell the students, put your cell phone away. It's very simple. Remind them, put a note on the board, do a little touch and teach, put our cell phones away, and we'll be fine. But ILT felt strongly that this was something we needed. So I said, okay, let's do it. We'll see how it works. And boy, was I wrong. It's worked out uh, very well. And I think the freshman team of teachers that we have in, in various content areas, they use that, that, that rotation of each different period and where everybody puts the uh, cell phone, which is, I think, a, a, a really brilliant idea. And if I could figure out a way to get that prepared for every teacher, um, like every couple of weeks, and, and we create it, and all the teacher has to do is pin it up, I think that would be fantastic. Um, it has taken a lot more focus on teaching and conversations related to content as opposed to I'm checking a game or I'm playing Snake or I'm doing mm-hmm. something like that. So that was, I, I think, something and I'll admit. I don't have all the answers, but I will share what I think. Um, but I, list, I also tried to listen to the leadership team, and they were strongly uh, in favor of this. So I try to support what that team does. Um, 
and we, we would see. And after one year, it worked out great. And I've noticed in walking classrooms this year, um, it, it's like 99% of teachers are using every period of the day. And we probably have about 40% of our teachers using the, um, the tabs so every student knows where to put it. And I think it's just become one of those common practices and an expectation, not a rule, but an expectation for students to come in here to learn. So we're going to put the cell phones away. And if you're mature and you need the cell phone for your calculator or something, you simply ask the teacher, may I get the calculator? And what I found, most of our teachers say, sure, absolutely. So it, it, it's, it's teaching those uh, students to kind of advocate for themselves when they need it and prepare them for learning. And I think our teachers were spot on and absolutely correct. And I think I've told them multiple times, boy, I really missed the bus on that one. So great job by the leadership team. Well, and like I was actually, even before you got here, I was with you on the philosophical piece of like, I, I just believe that students should learn how to handle their own technology. Mm -hmm. Like part of what we're doing is building the best people possible and they're gonna have to have a cell phone in their pocket um, and be able to manage that mm -hmm. without constantly playing games all the time. And to be perfectly honest, our students have Chromebooks, and sometimes they use the Chromebooks to play Snake or whatever mm -hmm. uh, unblocked game they can find that's hidden on something in the Google uh, sites that's outside of our server blocking. Mm -hmm. um, but what I realized um, is as I was like looking at my students, uh, what changed my mind about it is it was becoming an equity issue in that mm -hmm. my students who had the best self-control and were the highest academically had no problem putting their phone away, keeping it in their backpack, mm -hmm. and not letting it be a distraction. Mm -hmm. My students who were the most likely to struggle also had the toughest time getting off Snapchat, getting off Instagram. Mm -hmm. um, and I realized that I was feeling it too for me. So one of my things is I try to ensure that I am also leading by example. Mm -hmm. So anytime the kids are checking their phones in, I check my cell phone in as well. I sit really? in slot yep. number 36, and it just says Nick Williams, Nick Williams, Nick Williams, <laughs> Nick Williams, Nick Williams for every single period. Yeah. And so I have to be present as well. Um, because what I realized was like I'm sitting down with my kids at home eating dinner, and my phone is buzzing. Mm -hmm. And it's just so hard not to check it. Um, and so to give students the opportunity to just have it not there as a distraction, and can we conduct our life without the cell phone? Um, and it turns out 90% of the time, we totally can. Mm -hmm. um, and then that other 10% of the time, because like I teach physics, every once in a while, I want the kids to take a slow motion video of something cool happening. Like I want to see a collision in slow motion. And so then I ask them, like three people go up, grab your phones, let's get a good video of this. Um, and then we can use it as a real tool. Yeah. I think one of the advantages that the team and, and you're bringing up about putting that away is eventually over time, if we're patient enough and enforce it, this will just become culture and expectation. And it's like, hey, I'm here for my 90 hours or I'm here for 90 minutes or I'm here for 53 minutes. I'm going to focus on what we've got for teaching and talking to the, my, my peers and listening to the teacher. And they won't think anything of it once we get about one more year down the road because we'd have three years of this being enforced. So. It's going to mm -hmm. be positive. Yeah, and it's been great. Like students talk to each other face to face more yep. often. Um, if you do get to a situation where it's like, ah, I've got like three minutes left, the kids actually like turn and talk to each other instead mm -hmm. of pull the phone out and silently scroll through things. Yeah, um, so I think there's a real positive social good there too. There is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thing number two: um, student ambassadors. Yeah. 
So tell us about the what, how, why, and yeah. what a student ambassador is. So I, I found out, I don't know if this one's research-based, but um, I was on a WASP visit, oh, 10, 11 years ago, quite some time ago, to Ramona High School, which is down in San Diego. And we had a brilliant team of administrators. We found the first day going into classes, they would have two students come up to us and tell us, basically, um, we're learning about uh, homeostasis today, or we're learning about um, functions. And then they, they'd say, would you like to know anything else or something? And then they would walk back to their seats. So as a team, we came back and said, what is this gimmick they got? They had to have just put this on for WASC. But we all agreed, this is great. This is really great that students are able to articulate what's happening or what they're doing. So we asked the principal, and he said, no, this came from our world language department. They felt it was really important for our students to practice language. So often, it, I think it started that the Spanish department and French, they would come in speaking Spanish or French. Um, so I always said to myself, if I ever get the opportunity, I'm going to try to put this into play. So then looking at that, uh, that Simon Sinek and framing you know, of, of why and, and, and uh, working kind of in that backwards, and using Martin Luther King's speech as that example that he had, an Apple computer, that if students, it, it's really important for them to know what's expected of them. Mm-hmm. So what are we doing today? How are we going to go about doing that? And why is this important? They need to know why we're studying this or why we're going to learn this or why we're having this kind of conversation or why we're doing a Socratic ser- mm-hmm. seminar. How does that contribute to that learning? So um, started at the previous school I was at. And um, we had two students, and they are going to get up. And this was really in preparation for a WASP visit. But they will go to see any adult visitor, say what they're learning, how they're going to go about learning it, and why this is important. And then truly, if it's absolutely flawless, then they open up um, with their hands. They open their body and say, what questions might you have for me? Which is a phrase that I just love. Yeah. Like, if we're so, going to do it, we should do it as awkwardly as possible yeah. with the most canned language possible. Uh, yeah. It's spectacular. And... Um, it's, there, there's kind of an ulterior motive of this is one, yes, students should be able to articulate in their own language. And when we're doing it really well, and it usually happens when it's consistent, mm-hmm. and last year it wasn't consistent, first year it was much more consistent, and that was my fault for not being in rooms as much as I needed to be last year. But usually you get that February time, that's that sweet spot mm-hmm. where students aren't looking at it at the board. They just turn their back and then they just tell us, but they're using academic vocab. Because sometimes I will often ask them, so what's that called when you're studying this? And then they'll use the academic vocabulary associated with it. And the second part of that, of the the non-academic, is our our students need to be able to make that eye contact, have a good handshake and grip, have good posture, be confident, speak in the language expected of them. Because we want them competitive for college. We want them competitive in the job marketplace. When you interview, you have to be confident. You have to make eye contact. You have to have that posture. So it's working on that as well. Every opportunity they get to speak to that adult in a positive, using the right language, with confidence, we need to take advantage of this. This is a controlled setting where we can give them feedback too. So it's all about teaching those skills. And that's kind of why we do that. Yeah, um, what I really like about it is uh, like the con- like the objective, like the lesson objective. Like this is a, a, it was a common thing that was kind of like a thing that teachers hate mm-hmm. was that like mandate that you have to have the standard written on the board for every lesson. Um, and I think some states push that super hard yeah. on like the actual common core standard with the common core phrasing must be written on the board and then the students must repeat back what standard are they learning and I think teachers disliked it because it felt like it was really micromanaging and it was having kids use words that were not actually relevant to their learning Mm -hmm. 
um, not regular human words. Mm-hmm. Standards are written in like educationese. Yeah, absolutely. Um, by adults. By adults. And so we want kids to use language that is relevant for kids and using real human words. Yeah. Um, there's a PSYOP strategy um, that we did for a little while with like content objective mm-hmm. and then language, language. objective. Mm-hmm. But trying to figure out what the language objective is as opposed to the content objective is always like, wait, what, what are we doing? Um, and so what I really like is that now when we talk about what are we learning today, we just use the terms what, how, and why. Like, what are we trying to learn? How are we going to do it? Mm-hmm. And why are we bothering to waste yeah. our time doing it? Absolutely. Um, and I think that is consistent school-wide. We even have them color-coded. Yep. So in every single classroom, there's a little sign that says what, yep. and it's orange. There's a little sign that says how, and it's purple. There's a little sign that says why, and it's green. Um, and so every class, the kids know this is what we're learning. This is how we're going to do it. And this is why I'm bothering to do it. And it's a perfect example of taking, you might get an English learner and pairing them up and giving them that they need to practice the English language. And it's structured. So if an English language learner needs to read it, at at the very least, they're getting to practice that language. And over time, they're more confident. They'll come up to you. They'll speak more because they have a lot to say. And, you know, the last thing on that that I wanted to just kind of bring up is it goes back to coaching. If I'm teaching somebody how to get through a screen, we're going to learn how to get through a screen today. There are three different this is ways. A basketball we screen. This is a basketball we're screen. We're not doing a Zoolander. No, Try we're to not. Files, <laughs> find the files inside <laughs> no, the computer. No. Get through so, that screen. Yeah. So we can dance around, we can swim over, or we can duck under. And each are used for certain things. And why is this important? It's because you're going to be screened at this area. You're going to be screened at this area. So they need to know those things. And then when I'm communicating in a quick game and I can just simply say duck under, Oh, okay, Coach, we've practiced that. I know what we're doing. I know how we've done it because we repeat it, and I know why I'm doing it because when they post you up this way, that's how I duck under, and that's why I want to duck under. So it's the same kind of thing. It's mm-hmm. all just teaching. Yeah, um, and I think it's like it provides great relevance for the students because, like, at first I was like, I don't know. Like, my kids know what they're what we're learning, but I would walk into so many classrooms, um, and I would have no idea what the kids were learning, and then you'd ask them, and they're like, ah, we're filling out this paper yeah um and it's like oh oh dear and like you sit there for five or ten minutes and you're like oh i get it you're working on this specific skill but for many kids it is not as clear as i assume it is as a teacher and um mr casper who's an assistant principal in here i run a conversation he said that every classroom was in like 10 classrooms the other day when i was off campus he said i'll walk i'll kind of let you know he just said, I knew exactly, the students knew exactly what was expected of them and why they were doing it in every single classroom. And I sat down with a group um, in um, Marine Bio, and, you know, they had a balloon. They were working on the wind. And, yeah, we're going to take a balloon. We're going to spit this way. And we're doing this because we want to determine blah, 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 blah. I'm, thinking, I'm assuming a Coriolis effect. Yep, that's exactly wind it. Wind patterns, yep. Yep. And I was like, you nailed it. And it was just it was part and they all knew and they were all talking and they were talking in their groups about and using that vocabulary so i think the teachers have done an excellent job of making sure students knew what they're doing how they're doing it and why this is this is important how this fits into their to their lives right which is huge because if you don't know what's expected of you you can't do that absolutely thing. so making expectations clear is a great first step okay so that was our first two thing number three is a plus one yeah. question 
what is a plus one question? So that's asking that question and you get a response from the student and it's really focusing on, so why do you say that? What makes that true? How do you know that? And getting the student to go deeper. So going, not only taking that answer, which shouldn't be one word, we shouldn't try to get to these yes or no questions, uh, but it's enforcing the complete sentences and then getting them to justify their thinking, to explain why. And then we want our students to kind of go back and forth with that same kind of concept. So I might ask a question on um, something uh, on English on why they may have determined that the ghost in Julius Caesar would go here. And I said, well, why would you place the ghost there um, as opposed to not having the ghost appear uh, within this particular scene and having them justify, well, if you put the ghost here and then they go and continue to justify their thinking and go deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, so it's just a, a way to get students to think at higher levels. Mm -hmm. And it's really important for, I think, teachers to try to plan for that. Where am I going to have that? Because there is a time and a place for just that yes or no. Mm -hmm. So you're checking for understanding. But this is really getting into the depth of why they know what they know, why um, they can justify their thinking to make sure that you know that they know and you know what they don't know. Because you can't change your teaching practices unless you know wh why they don't know something. Mm -hmm. so, and then you can make that adjustment. That's right. the gist behind it. So it's getting to getting a, more from a check for understanding and turning it into a check for depth of understanding yeah. and relevance. Brilliant. So like said. on an elementary school level, you could ask, uh, Sarah, what's five times four? She says, 20. Okay, like, how do you know that? Mm -hmm. Why is five times four 20? Oh, well, I have these beans on my desk, and I have five groups of them, and there's four in each group, and then I counted up all the beans, yep. and I have 20 total. Yes. Um, or she could just say, it's on my times table sheet here, and I see it says 20, or I've memorized it, yeah. which eventually is where we want kids to be for, mem for like multiplication. But it, when they're first learning it, you know, what does it actually mean to multiply? Yeah, and it's also it, it, it's effective strategy to get more student voice in the, to the classroom because you want students listening and thinking about it. So you add certain strategies by saying um, this side of the room might is going to paraphrase what that side said and then I want you to challenge that thing do you agree or not thumbs up thumbs down you know who doesn't know and start digging for some of those answers um, so I, that's the purchase the purpose behind it and why it's so important in what we do yeah and one of the cool things about those plus one questions I think one of the traps that teachers fall into is teachers are generally people who like to talk mm-hmm um, and so then the teacher does so much of the airtime the talking in the classroom and the students are just receiving. Mm -hmm. um, but in order to actually learn things, the students have to do some of the creating and some of the speaking themselves. Um, I would argue like at least 50%, mm -hmm. if not more. Um, and so it, those plus one questions say, I'm going to ask a reasonably in-depth question, and then I want the student to really talk and maybe even talk with a partner yeah. and discuss this in some depth yeah. and then share out to the rest of the class. Absolutely. And... Um as you were talking, you made me think of, I can't remember his first name. His last name was, Doc, it was Dr. Rodriguez, but I cannot remember his first name. And in one of my previous districts, three or four districts ago, he had talked about, um, you know, a couple things. One was primacy, recency, and students remember something first and what's last. And the other was um, 
the time that it takes that you're talking and that airtime we have and the age groups and where your brain just gets flooded with information and can't do it, can't take anymore. And basically adults, it's about that 12 to 15 minutes. And most, you know, high school, the higher level can do that. But your freshman is maybe a seven to nine minutes. And after you go seven to nine minutes, they need time to process, they need time to talk, they need time to write, Mm -hmm. they need time to reflect on it and then speak out and share. And um, if, if we just as teachers talk for 25 minutes and give an assignment, they've lost. They've remembered what you just the last three minutes and the first three minutes. They've forgotten everything in between. Uh-huh. Um, my wife teaches kindergarten, first grade, and her general rule of thumb is that a kid can do an activity for approximately their age in years. Um, so if she's teaching five-year-olds, she's got about five minutes before she needs to change activities in some way. Yeah, pretty solid rule of thumb there. Like yep. five minutes on the carpet, now we're doing five minutes over here. Now five minutes back on the carpet, now five minutes over here. Um, if we're teaching high schoolers, then I've got about 14 minutes yeah. with my freshmen until I need to change something. Yeah. Um, and I've actually gotten in the habit of setting myself a timer. Um, so I pull my phone out of the caddy, set a timer for 13 minutes, and say like, all right, I'm gonna try to blitz you with this information. We got 13 minutes on the clock. Um, and then when it goes off, I got one minute to wrap, mm-hmm. and then it is your time. Um, now you're going to practice it. Yep. Um, just because, you know, even if they get the first three and the last three, at least I only wasted six <laughs> or seven minutes in the middle. Well, you don't waste any time. I've been in your room before. So, uh, but yeah, you nailed it. That's exactly it. Yeah. Good rule of thumb. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that was plus one questions. Number four, um, students using complete sentence and academic vocabulary. Um, for example, using sentence starters or sentence frames yeah. to start student speech. Yeah, and I can't remember. I mean, that's been, I think that's within a PSYOP strategy, and it's been a variety of uh, research-based uh, practices. But the, the key of, uh, and I'll use this kind of comparison, and I, I might ramble on, so make sure you, you no, keep this me, is great. Um, focused. So churches mm-hmm. and courts and schools all have a certain way of conducting themselves. There's a certain... Um, air to them. There's a certain um, language that's used. In school, we want to speak in complete sentences because this is an academic institution. And a lot of students don't necessarily have that background. And when you're working in a lower socioeconomic, who um, oftentimes we, we would find that one of my sites, parents are working two, three, four jobs. Students are taking care of kids. Um, they're cooking. They're the housekeep. You know, they're, they're actually playing a mother or father role. Um, they don't always have that role modeled, and it may be in a se- it may be role modeled, but it may be role modeled in a second language. So, giving students that opportunity that when we're having a discussion, this is how we have that discussion, and we use sentence starters to practice that. Um, so, having that and having teacher sentence starters as well, and student sentence starters helps with that process. So, students can talk and say, um, "I respect with what Group One said." However, I would like to submit. Etc. 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 Whatever you can yeah, make yeah. them formal to math, to English, to science, to social study. There's millions of them out there, but it's teaching explicitly teaching that there is a process in the language we use when we have these kinds of conversations, um, and complete sentences. Again, we're an academic institution. We are expected to use complete sentences, so making sure and reinforcing that is critical and. There were at least a half a dozen occasions where this year, and it just, I was tickled to death when I saw it, um, when a teacher said, can you put that in a complete sentence? And the student absolutely went right to it. And the, the, the look and the feel in the classroom was like, wow, that was brilliant. As mm-hmm. opposed to, 
They just threw out a couple of key terms and phrases. And that's what we're trying to get our students to understand. Academic language, complete sentences. This is an academic institution. So code switch a little bit. When you're in the locker room, when you're out in the quad, that's great. But when we're in the classroom, we kind of put that thinking hat on and mm -hmm. that reflective hat on and that academic hat on. Um, and we need to give them those opportunities to practice. Plus, the higher levels I think we go and we're pushing knowledge and we want students to, to challenge one another's thinking, we need to set up a structure for that so mm -hmm. it doesn't go south. Right. So we don't get a, oh, that's, yeah. you know, You're bleep, stupid bleep. because yeah. you think. Absolutely. Um, and furthermore, in getting this, and I haven't emphasized it as much, um, and I think in time, it's a next step is to say, you know, when, when, I, when I'm justifying my thinking, citing the book, citing mm. the text, citing the article. Uh -huh. According to Blank. Um, Williams, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, this suggests that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then we get, um, I know what Williams said. However, Johnson suggests in his research or her research this 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 that's critical and that really refutes your point because etc 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 yeah so. and i think like a huge piece of that is how we make that request of students um because if it feels like a scold then you're going to get a response that feels like you've just been scolded and that's not going to be a positive mm -hmm. response but if you phrase it in a positive tone like, I love that idea. Can you rephrase that in a full sentence for me? Mm -hmm. um, then students, like you actually see them, like their shoulders go back and they sit up a little bit straighter and there's a little bit more confidence there. Like they like being told that what they're saying is valuable and that I'd like you to say more of it. And you actually did that the other day uh, when I was just, I was cutting through your class. I wasn't walking through. I was trying to get into the hallway to get something. In I've you. got a very convenient classroom <laughs> uh, throughway. But you did an excellent job of saying, I like the way you said that. And you framed it. And that's exactly the response. And everybody kind of turned around to look. You know, students like that. Right. They, they want to know what's expected. They want to know, how do I say this at a higher level? Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the things that that emphasizes. Yeah, and there's a few ways that you can do that. Like one is you can have for a specific question, here's how I'd like you to start your answer. Like, you know, the start of the answer is written on the board. Um, another way that we do it is for like some kind of class discussion piece. Mm -hmm. We have a school-wide set of color-coded sentence uh -huh. frames. Mm -hmm. And so like it's all on one sheet of paper and it looks kind of like a rainbow. Yep. Um, but then like red is for agreeing or disagreeing. Uh, green is for citing evidence, uh, you know, orange. So like each color has a different thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then the students, like if they're like, oh, I want to disagree with Mark, but without calling him a name, mm -hmm. let's double check on red. While I understand yeah. Mr. Sims' point, I believe blank. Yeah, um, uh, it, it just, it, and eventually the more we use that and refer to that and we're explicit about you, you need to use the sentence starters associated with that. So make sure as a group you check that. Um, the long, when, if you do that in October, August, and September, and October, then it becomes part of just what they do in January, February, March, especially when it's happening classroom to classroom to classroom to classroom. Right. And the first few times, it's going to feel super awkward. Yep. Um, and you almost help the kids make fun of the process. Yep. Like, yes, we will sound awkward. Like, that's okay. I'm going to read it a little bit robotic at first, like we're all doing this together. 
and but it builds a, ha- a state of habits mm-hmm. that then turn into actions pushing into the spring. Yeah, and the other thing that worked very well is when teachers model this those first few times. Mm-hmm. And I recall um, one teacher that uh, was at one of the schools that I was at, uh, ex very strong English teacher. She spent really the first four times asking them, watch the way I do this, watch for my language, look for this, look for that. And she would also have another student and role model that. Her groups were so far ahead compared to the rest of the the departments because she spent so much time making sure it was done right in kind of that fishbowl scenario. So, um, and I've really been pleased when we use that and I see it in the rooms with the discussions at the level of thinking that our students are displaying. Nice. So that was number four, pushing complete sentences. Yep. Uh, number five is opportunities for students to challenge their thinking. Yeah, that kind of goes along with the same thing. Um, we, it's important for students to understand they're always involved in the process of learning in class. Mm-hmm. And it's important for our adults to understand that we can't allow students to check out. So if we're phrasing, if we're going to have a deep a plus one question, we want to make sure if that group is, is, is responding, everybody else in the room has something to look for, something to listen for, and something to react to. And if they do that, that raises that level. Everybody is is on the hook for this learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where the paraphrase uh, comes in there. It's just being very aware and very explicit about setting up that conversations. Some of the greatest learning I had as a teacher um, was when a student would bring up a point in first period. And I would like, i got to write that down. That's amazing. So I'd go up to the whiteboard and write that down. And then in second and third period, I'd say, you know, Billy, in first period, made this observation about, you know, something. That's really profound. And, and here's why. And here's what they said. So take advantage of all those things. Mm-hmm. Because students can rephrase and say something in a manner that everybody else just kind of says, wow, that's pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. You use those things uh, to your advantage. Um, so challenging their thinking and also using their thinking for other classes is really, really important and critical. And what I really like about this one is that it's not like a prescribed strategy. It's more of a philosophy. Um, like students should challenge their own thinking. Teachers should challenge students' thinking. And then we also want students to challenge each other's thinking and the teacher's thinking. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, when you were describing it that way, would it also be possible to do it in this other way? It's like, yes, like it totally would. Let's go into a little bit more depth there. Yeah, I was in a government econ class the other day, and there was a really good discussion um, where the students were challenging the, the teachers thinking, not necessarily in a negative way, but, well, why wouldn't it be this way? Because this happened. Mm-hmm. Or when, when FDR did this, what was, didn't that make an impact on LBJ's decision-making for, you know, et cetera? Um, it doesn't seem to match up that thinking. Um, and then they were probing, and then they were, they just did such an outstanding job. It, it was a lot of fun. In fact, unfortunately, I said about 20 minutes in that class because I was so into what the students were saying. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, it's almost, I mean, I haven't thought about it this way before, but it's almost like encouraging students to be asking the plus one questions, yep. right? The plus yep. one question from teacher to student, and then opportunities for students to challenge thinking, asking their own plus one questions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Cool. Um, number six. Uh, the teacher attends to all students. So that's defined. I can't remember how that that came about. Um, it may have came about from a, a gentleman, and I, gosh, I forgot his name, but um, he was nicknamed the Horse Whisperer. Um, he had a horse ranch, okay. and he worked in Sacramento and really brilliant, um, bilingual. And he said one of the most frustrating things is when teachers allow students 
to, to or adults, I should say, because it applies for administration for other things that happen, when they don't attend all students, they let students off the hook. So if you're sitting in the corner and you don't bother me, but you're not working, I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. That can't happen in, in, in this profession and what we do. All students need to be important to the teacher and the teacher needs to attend to the learning of every single student. Um, I mean, it kind of has, if you're talking about uh, ZPD and um, where students are and how we're trying to push them forward in that sweet spot, it's sort of like that. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's always meant ZPD to... ZPD is Zone of Proximal, proximal development. development. Yeah. Okay. So um, what I think frustrates me most is when that student has their head down and it isn't into the lesson... Uh, and to what's happening and missing out on 20 minutes of learning. And the teacher's like, okay with that. And I had a conversation with the teacher the other day. Do you, do you know why the student's head was down? Did you give them permission? Did you know that they worked all night? Did you know maybe that mom was in the hospital and mm-hmm. they haven't slept or eaten? Because I understand sometimes you've got to make a decision as a teacher that that student needs to sleep right now. Right. The healthiest thing for this kid is, is to do this. To sleep. But if you don't know why, then that's an issue. Uh-huh. Um, and that's what that means too. Nobody, that's what that means. Nobody gets away with not doing the work. Mm-hmm. And it also goes back to, you know, Nick, um, you're not at standard on these things. You haven't kind of been proficient here. I need you to do this work again, or let's take this quiz again, or let's do this over and over and over until you demonstrate it. And I'm here to help you. Uh-huh. Um, and I think our teachers do a pretty good job of wanting students to be successful. That's the feedback I've got from somebody I know very well um, that happens to attend the school. Okay. That there is um, there's a tremendous emphasis on our teachers of we want you to do well. We're really here to help. Uh-huh. And um, I think tutorial has been part of that evidence. And we'll see what the, the actual data um, quantitative piece comes. But the qualitative piece is it, it, that it's helping and assisting students. So attending to all. Part, tutorial is part of attending to all. Nobody gets a free ride. Nobody gets to put their head down. Mm-hmm. Nobody gets to not do the work. We expect you to do the work. We expect you to be present in class, kind of like the phone caddies. Mm-hmm. And, and our adult responsibility is to make sure that we enforce that and make sure students are learning. So right. that's that part. And like as a teacher, I'm going to give you the attention that you deserve. Um, like I see you. And that's one of the things that I kind of, I think that's a huge piece of relationship building is getting to have at least a couple words with every single kid, Mm -hmm. every single class. And sometimes that's really tough to do Mm -hmm. um, because especially if you got a 53 minute period and you've got 35 kids in the room, um, you know, you're averaging a minute and a half per kid and Mm -hmm. that's before you do any of the other stuff, like talking to the whole class or whatever. Um, But I find that like those little pieces Things, I mean, small pieces like greeting kids at the door. Yes. Um, I see such a difference on the days that I have my stuff together well enough that I can get to the front door, yes. stand in the sunshine, um, and say, good morning or good afternoon. Yep. It's good to see you again. Instead of scrambling, right. getting my papers together, uh, switching things over, and then doing it for the whole yeah. class. Yeah. Like I always say good morning. Sometimes <laughs> it's one-on-one at the yeah. door give them a fist bump or a handshake or whatever. And other times it's like, good morning to the whole class. Good to see you guys again. And it makes such a difference when there's a personal one-to-one attention connection. Yeah. I, I, I think back to, to my own teaching days and it's for high school. It's frenetic. It's hectic. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but we just try to probably be mindful is I've got to try to take some time, especially from students who may not be so engaged, uh-huh. to connect with them. And I had a great conversation with a teacher today, and it kind of was in line with um, Dr. LB's work with focal students, that I think I'm picking this student because it's, I, I noticed they've been disengaged. And I noticed when I've greeted them, they've started to say, say good morning. And then today, the student said good morning to me without any prompting. Whoa. So I really felt that I'm, I'm getting somewhere there, and it, I'm going to parlay that into increasing academic work uh-huh. uh, for the student and absolutely nailed it. It was so great to hear. Um, so important that because that's a student who would, who I know quite well, who would be happy to sit in class, just put a book in front of them and look down at the book, look up, look down at the book, hold a pen, but they're not engaging anything. They're not thinking, mm-hmm. they're not participating. They're off someplace else. And a typical response from some teachers, some teachers would be, you don't bother me, I don't bother you, we're cool. Right. And that's not okay. Yeah. And to hear that I'm intentionally engaging with this student and they responded, but without my prompting, is awesome. Nice. Well, and it seems like you also live that with your work with teachers in that like you are getting into every teacher's rooms, um, teachers who need you more, you're yeah, certainly seeing, trying. seeing their yeah. rooms more often, um, but like you attend to all of your quote-unquote students, who in this case are your teachers. Yeah, I try. Yeah. Sometimes not so successfully, but I try. All right, that was number six. Number seven, um, teacher demonstrates high expectations. No off the hook. Clearly explain what students should know and do. Yeah, that kind of goes back with attending to the students and mm-hmm. going with what, how, and why. So uh, that, that off the hook is, again, you don't bother me, I don't bother you. Um, demand not rules about things, but we expect more of you. You can do this and really talk to them about, you guys are amazing. You're brilliant. I know you can do this. Have high expectations for yourself. You can do better. Let's work at this and we're going to get better. And really having like that coaching um, attitude towards it. I, I, was, I was talking to our trainer yesterday. I was observing our volleyball team, and our volleyball girls' volleyball coach is, is excellent. Mm-hmm. And just he has the rapport. He's always teaching. But the way he does it is such a, a, um, a positive that we can do this and having high expectations of you. And um, that translates well into the classroom. What I found with high school students teaching them, when they connect with you, they don't want to disappoint your expectation, and uh-huh. they will rise to that. And that's really what that speaks to, is just getting that whole culture of um, have the expectation, have them meet the expectation clearly, tell them what you want them to do, and keep pushing. Well, and that's like, what, number two on John Hattie's list of uh, most impactful teaching strategies is yeah. teacher expectations of students. And it crosses over with Marzano's, I believe, as well. They okay. have like those eight strategies, or there's five that, that both agree. Um, that but these I, are the things that really make a difference. Yeah. I mean, what it basically boils down to is the efficacy of the teacher at the front of the room, mm-hmm. or hopefully not at the front of the room, hopefully wandering around the room, yeah. chatting with students and mm-hmm. helping them with work. Yep. Um, but like the efficacy of the teacher in the classroom. Uh, but there's a bunch of stuff within that efficacy, and one of those pieces is teacher expectations for the students. Um, you know, one of my pieces on like the no off the hook piece is also like when I ask a student a question, um, I don't know, is not a valid answer. Yeah, circle back to them. Um, yep. Like, I don't know yet, but let me look it up real fast and I'll get right back to you. Totally valid answer. That's a very informed, intelligent answer. Like, wow, that's a really good question, and I'm not 100% sure yet, but I can find out for you. Um, just give me a little bit. 
Great. Or, uh, well, I, I don't know. Okay. Ask the person next to you. Mm-hmm. Katie, can you help him out? Like, yeah. Oh, nope. Oh, Katie can't help him out either. All right. How about Jeremy? Yep. Jeremy, can you help them out? And if I go through like three kids and nobody knows, then it's like, all right, I, I screwed this, this up. Again. Yeah. That was on me. Yeah. I thought that I had explained that. I thought that was common knowledge within our classroom now. And apparently I am wrong. Yeah. So let's reteach that one right now. Brilliant. Checking for understanding and realizing that that was, ooh, I need to do that again. And I saw that the other day in a classroom and it was great. Student didn't know and said, turn to your shoulder partner and, and talk. I'm going to come back to you. And went like to two or three other students. And I'm thinking, uh-oh. Forgot about it. Forgot. Yeah. Nope. Right back. Okay. You guys have had a chance to talk. Yeah. All right. And oh, the student respond. It was. It was money. Yeah. What it was. It it's was nice. really so great to see. And you know, I've just been really pleased with, especially these last two weeks, um, the work of our teachers. It's been pretty amazing in the rooms I've been able to get into. Nice. Yeah. It's, it was great. It's good. Been good. Um, okay. So that was number seven. Number eight. Uh, teacher and students thinking out loud, focusing on metacognition. So as the expert in the room, um, and I can't remember where this came from. Uh, I think it was Dr. Rodriguez that I mentioned earlier and the importance of you're the expert. So he would do this and he would really play it off of. He'd say, hmm, self, what would be the first thing I would do here? Well, I know that, you know, X has to happen here. And I know that why is important here. So self, this is how I'm going to do this. And whether he's writing a paragraph or solving a math problem. So as the expert, really demonstrate how you think about writing, how you think about looking at a lab report, how Mm -hmm. you think about um, hitting a tennis ball Uh if you're in a physical education class, how you prepare. So, um, you know, you talk about test taking, how you tell students, this is how I mentally go about thinking and preparing for taking a test or even with your teaching. This is how I think and I prepare about uh, how I'm going to teach a lesson. I do this, then I do this, then I do this. It's not luck. Right. You know, it's intentional. So show them when you're solving math, show them when you're writing, this is how I think about it. When I see this question, I think, hmm, this is what the question's asking me. Next, I wanna look here. What do I see here? And talking about those things out loud and, and asking students, how did you think about that? Uh-huh. That's a brilliant response. That's a brilliant way of responding to that particular uh, question and that prompt. Tell me what you were thinking to do that. How did mm-hmm. you go about that process? Um, because there's, I remember as a student in high school all the way up to my doctoral classes thinking, wow, that's brilliant. I got to think that way. Uh-huh. And using strategies I learned from other students. Right. And it, it, it's being intentional about sharing your own and then sharing the students, especially when they do something that is unique. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can even be the simple part. Um, you know, I, I was talking to a student the other day about, well, how did you know how to cut that right there? Oh, well, I did this and this and this. And, um, huh, I never knew that. And I've kind of remembered those things so I can use them in my own life. Again, I learn a lot about what students do by asking them some of those questions. So that's the whole theory behind the strategy. One, uh, teachers are the experts. Share your expert knowledge and your expert thinking with them to help students really be intentional. And then the, the part two of that is when students bring up that, really ask them how they're thinking. What were their strategies they used to think through that? Yeah, um, that's one of my favorites, especially when teaching physics and doing like skill-based physics problems. Um, is like I'll 
every problem that I assign, I will make sure that I post the key for. Mm -hmm. So like I'll assign it, it'll be due Friday. Friday, the key gets posted online. I'll go around and just like stamp the kid's work and check that it's done. And um, they check their work while they're going through. And then we say, okay, which ones do I need to go over? Um, Because you've seen how I went about doing it, but which ones should I explain to you? Um, And then we have like three or four from each uh, set. Um, And then I can go through and talk about like, okay, so I'm trying to solve for acceleration. I can see that that's what I need to solve for. Uh, My first equation for acceleration that I would jump to is velocity over time. Do I have a velocity? I do not. Okay, do I have a time? I do not. Oh, okay. How am I feeling about that equation? I am not feeling good about that equation. I have neither of the other two pieces. Is there any other, like, what do I have? I've got a force. Okay, force is good. I have a mass right there. I got acceleration, I got force, I got mass. Is there an equation that puts those things together? Oh, here it is. It's on my physics everything sheet. It's on the force line, not on the acceleration line, but it says F equals MA. Cool. Okay, now I can take this and like you just talk, talk through, here's what I'm thinking and here's why I'm thinking what I'm thinking right. and here's how I'm processing it. And I try to intentionally make some mistakes along the way mm-hmm. so I can process through, oh, this is the mistake I made. Now how do I go back and check my work and make sure that it passes my BS test? Yeah. And you, again, you referred back to what, how, and why. So it always circles back into our thinking of and how we go about doing um, our work, especially when we're talking about metacognitive strategies. Right. Cool. Okay, that was number eight, um, think out louds or metacognition. Yep. Number nine is consistent routines and practices. So when students go from class to class to class, it also goes with expectations, and they know exactly what the routine is, and they know what to expect of them, they will meet those targets. And we talk about, you know, like the clear paragraph that we use at this school, we use a different one. But students know, oh, I'm writing, oh, I I go to clear. Oh, I do this. Um, The phone caddies, it's a routine. Mm -hmm. It's a procedure that we have. Um, it's consistent in every classroom and learning just accelerates when it's consistent. There's the high expectation with it. There's a procedure for it and they know exactly what that is. We talked about sentence starters, sentence frames, again, consistent. Oh, we're having a Socratic sandbar. This is how I have to act because I do it in English. I do it in math. Mm -hmm. I do it in science. I do it in social science. So, um, it's just solid practices. Yeah. Um, or even down to details, like if there's a homework assignment, I know where it's posted. It's posted in the same place all the time. I can figure it out. The what, how, why, I know exactly where to look at it. It's in the same place all the time. I'm good to go. Um, I mean, I I love that one because I am a very high structure person. (laughs) Um, I think I said something controversial at a a staff meeting like a year ago. Uh, We took these Indigo profile surveys, which are basically like a how you rate on different personality yeah, qualities. Yep. And I am a reasonably high S person. S is stability. Um, and we were explaining, like, what does it mean to be high S? And I was like, well, like, I really like knowing what's happening and knowing, like, what's going to happen every single day. And I don't like inconsistencies. So I would, like, be more than happy to take out all of our vacation breaks <laughs> because I really like five-day weeks I don't like it when there's like a Monday yeah. off because it throws my five-day school schedule off. I like knowing what's happening Monday, knowing what's happening Tuesday. I got five days of school, and then I have my two-day weekend. Yeah. And that's a structure that works really nice, and I think I am a weirdo on that one. Most people probably enjoy the vacation. but I, I enjoy the vacations as well. Yeah. But um, I think having those structures and stability 
allows students to feel safe and to know what to expect mm -hmm. and what's expected of them uh, and lets them kind of get through school as a positive experience. And I think that's, that system and that structure helps students navigate this whole thing of school. I, I, I think that teenagers, young people like the structure, they like the routine, they like the practice. I think what they just want to know is sometimes my structure is a little wider mm -hmm. and sometimes it's a bit more narrow. Mm -hmm. um, and when they know that, oh, it's going to be narrow right now, or oh, it's going to be wide. I have the freedom to move within these boundaries. So just the, the key is where do we extend those boundaries and when do we need to tighten those boundaries up? And I think that's a, that's a really key clarifying point because interestingly, like I do not like structure in the type of work that I want my students to do. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm having my students produce a piece that shows their understanding, I very rarely tell them the format that the piece has to be in. Mm -hmm. um, like, I want you to show me what you understand about this, and I want you to present it to me in some way. Right. You can make a video. That's great. Mm -hmm. You can uh, make a poster and do a poster presentation. You can do, like, a PowerPoint slide. Uh, you can do, you know, a song and dance. Like, what, whatever is your jam, mm -hmm. show me what you understand and convince me of your point. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I am big on free, open boundaries in terms of how we express that understanding, but then the steps that you take to get there, I do wanna make sure you're doing your research in this mm -hmm. ways, yeah. that you have at least three solid sources from a .edu or a .gov website. Mm -hmm. And here's how we're gonna search them up, and here's how you're gonna annotate those sources. Um, and then what you do with that, I want you to make sure that you have a claim associated with it and that you're supporting that claim with evidence, and however you express that is wonderful. Yeah. Make it convincing. You nailed it. Um, and so it's like there's a lot of structure leading in and then a lot of feeling like I have the freedom to do what I want to do and do my best work. Yeah. Cool. Um, number 10, almost there. Yeah. Uh, teachers and students using T-charts, Venn diagrams, graphic organizers, and visuals. Yeah. So that's going to help. Uh, with our EL students, it's going to help with our special needs students, it really helps for all students, but in particular those students to have that graphic representation of the learning plus to provide a structure for understanding. Um, it's a variety of things that you can use, whatever works, and there's a lot more. There's the fishbone, which uh, I can't even follow, the fishbone <laughs> diagram, which we used at Cali, which is a math conference, and I really okay. struggle with doing that it's cause and effect um, but again it's another structure that you can provide for students to help them gather understanding to organize their thoughts to place a visual to refer back to um, and, and the other thing that's not really mentioned in there are things like TPR um, which is total physical response which typically mm. you see in like a world language um, classroom we have one world language teacher in particular that when I'm in that teacher's room if I'm in there about seven or eight minutes I forget it's a world language. I don't speak the language, but because of the way the student, the teacher uses touch and teach, because they'll use, they'll use their total body in explaining things, it's like, oh, I get it. And, mm -hmm. and I've understood the conversation. It's like, whoa, they weren't even speaking in English. Uh -huh. I mean, and, and that's kind of what those things help us do to add to that. Um, you know, I haven't emphasized it as strongly as I have some other strategies, but I do notice teachers... Um, have have you have used different ways to represent understanding and learning mm -hmm. in some of the either the worksheets or some of the notes that they pass out? Um, 
I saw it on the board on a on Google Classroom, and the, they had posted their notes using a Venn diagram. It happened. It was in a world history class. Um, it's just a solid teaching practice. Right. Having some kind of graphic organizer, some kind of visual piece um, to the understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my students just did their Rube Goldberg presentation nights. And one of the things that we kind of emphasize is like, look, numbers don't translate very well orally. Like, I can tell you it's 0.39 joules, but that doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Like, I really like numbers, but if I listen to numbers, they don't mean anything. Like, seeing them is really important. And if you can actually see them in context, so I can show you 0.39, and then I show you a little pie chart and mm-hmm. show that 40% of the pie is filled up, like, ah, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Um, so creating some kind of visual component of that. You also mm-hmm. mes- mentioned uh, TPR, total physical response. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one that like I love, and I think mm-hmm. elementary schools, to give credit where credit is due, mm-hmm. do such a better job than high schools do. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of these really good strategies, elementary school teachers Correct. rock. And we mm-hmm. kind of forget that our students are still people mm-hmm. when they get to high school. Um, we get so focused on the content that we forget that they're kids and we forget that they're human beings and that the way human beings learning is through playing mm-hmm. and uh, being active and doing stuff. And being social. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and so having that like total physical response, um, you know, my wife, when she was teaching kindergarten, would have like an action for every letter. Or they would count by fives, and every time they would count by fives, they would touch their elbow to their opposite knee. Mm -hmm. Because I think there's some research about, like, crossing your midline Mm. helps remember things. So the kids are basically, like, doing calisthenics in the middle of the classroom while they're counting by fives. Um, What they're really trying to learn is how to count by fives. But they're just like, this is great. We're, yeah. we're jumping around. Right. I like this. It's brilliant practice. And again, the research, if after about that, that let's say it's that five minutes that you're teaching five-year-olds, so it's about five minutes of that activity, and maybe you're trying to give some new information for five minutes, get them up and get them moving for a minute, and then th- it re-energizes the brain uh-huh. to have another chunk of information. So um, brilliant thinking on, on your wife's part. And my wife was an elementary teacher as well. So when she was teaching my son to remember her address, she used this little song type pattern and a, and a touching type pattern so he would learn his address uh-huh. um, and I was just like I would have never thought of that you know we would, I was just taught this is the thing you gotta memorize it say it 400 times uh-huh. and you know after the third right. like, well, why am I saying this so. <laughs> the beatings will stop when, yeah. you're, when you're able <laughs> to repeat it correctly exactly um, okay so that was number 10 and then our 11th um, kind of like school-wide point of emphasis teaching strategy uh, is clear paragraph. Yeah, and that I think came out, if I can recall, that came out from an ILT discussion and the English department, um, I think. So that one originally, it was um, that one came from an English teacher who is no longer at San Marin, Allie Green, mm-hmm. um, and she pushed it through all of the ninth grade English, and then she started pushing it out into other departments as well. So CLEAR stands for claim, lead-in, evidence, analysis, and then repeat of the evidence and analysis Mm. sections. And it's effectively how we want our students to structure any point that they're making or any uh, writing piece that they're doing. We talk about it as a clear paragraph, but it can also just be a clear essay, a clear paper, a clear video piece. Um, You're making some kind of claim. You're explaining the background context for that claim. Uh, you're providing some evidence to support your claim. 
you're analyzing the evidence and explaining what it means and then how it connects back to your claim. And then you're repeating by giving another piece of evidence mm -hmm. and analyzing that piece of evidence that also supports your claim. And, and in, in a social studies class the other day, it was explicitly being taught um, for some work that they were doing. And again, that's just the consistency of we're an academic institution and by going, uh, by teaching in, in, in English and also seeing it in social science and seeing it if we're doing it in science and even in math because we want to justify thinking, um, it's a good practice and they just know what to expect and this is the academic way for how we go about doing um, our business in writing. And um, it, it's, it, it's, I want to say it's elementary in nature that it's not a high level strategy, but it's something that they, it's that acronym that they can remember that they can attach to. And then as seen, uh, students get older, then we start getting, you know, teaching a few other different things like the types of sentences that we use, whether we use a compound complex or a complex or a simple and how putting those things together helps us create meaning. And, and that's something that we advance to by, by the time, hopefully, that students exit um, our school. But yeah, again, it's consistent school-wide and students learn better that way. And I can't, I, the research came, I, I, the only thing that comes to my hands is RAND, but I know it's not RAND. Um, but that was one of those things that was a high-level strategy, eight things. One was consistent routines and practices and structures and systems across the school. Yeah. Um, and, like, as you mentioned, we kind of push clear paragraphs, clear writing in freshman year. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I like is that we're just all using the same language. Mm -hmm. um, and so pr previously, we had, like, eight different ways that different people were teaching writing. Mm -hmm. Like science, we would be like, all right, first you got to summarize your conclusion, and then you have to restate your hypothesis, mm -hmm. and then you have to explain experimental error. And it was like, this <laughs> just feels like a random list of things yeah. to write a conclusion. Like, what are we doing? Um, and then in math, it would be something different. And then in history, it would be something different. Um, and this kind of like unifies everything together as just like, this is how we make a point. Mm -hmm. You have something that you're trying to say. It's called a claim. Then you got to provide some evidence to support that idea mm -hmm. and explain why it makes sense. Um, and as you mentioned, like as we get our students older and more mature, then we can start teaching them how to break that rule. Mm -hmm. Like how do you make a point without following that right. kind of progress exactly um but once you know like okay this is a good breakdown like a backup um you know it's like learning how to write a good five paragraph essay if you can write a decent five paragraph essay you can get through just about every mm -hmm. college uh sat yeah. whatever it's like follow the format bang 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 make your point um and you're there yeah at the very least it's the fundamental way to go about forming that that uh argument forming that paragraph forming that writing and then as you advance, the higher you advance, the more you learn to tweak those things and trick those things based on some of your strengths or whatever the topic is. Right. And then how do I want to tweak it and do it a different way to make my prose more complex mm -hmm. and to make my point more nuanced and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, cool. So that was 11 different points of emphasis uh, that we hold at San Marin High School that you've kind of pushed. And one of the other pieces that I want to mention is that these points of emphasis have been really explicitly and clearly presented to the teachers. So you have like a, a walkthrough mm -hmm. um, sheet with like what you are looking for mm -hmm. as you walk through a classroom. Yeah. It's not a checklist. It's not like I need to see this. I have to see this. Um, there's some that you would expect to see. Yeah. Cell phone caddy, yep. what, how, why on the board. The ambassadors. Yeah. Uh, ambassadors, like pretty much in every single classroom. If you're only there for three or five minutes, you may not see a plus one question at that particular moment. 
because it's more students talking to other yeah. students. Um, or you might. But so it's not like a you must hit all of them. But it just gives teachers an idea of like, what do we value as a school? What are we calling, quote unquote, good teaching? Mm -hmm. um, and then it also doesn't mandate that teachers do it in a prescribed no. way. No. It's teach the best way you possibly can yeah. and throw these other good, good things in. Yeah. Teachers need to have the freedom to make some of those decisions because they're the experts in content and, and choose what works best for their students at that particular time. And some of the things I've done when I've, I've either met or, or posted a follow-up question as feedback is, I noticed you were doing this. Tell me about what happened after that or tell me what happened before that led to that particular thing that was happening. Um, when you've been in a lot of classrooms, and I've been in so many classrooms in the years of the site administrator, in those first couple of minutes, you can generally kind of get that feel of what's happening. And, when, and as a WASH chair and, and having conversations with some of the, the groups that I've chaired with, and they've all been just brilliant, incredible uh, teachers and administrators that have been part of it. You know, it's really the same consistent, oh, yeah, we were seeing this, and, it, and that was that was really great. And the way that this was done was excellent. Did you notice this teacher that, and you just see these consistent practices, and it's just, it's just brilliant to see schools move in that direction. Um, so what I've tried to do in those feedback is offer some of those thoughts. Or I didn't see this at this time, but tell me what, what happened prior to this or what happened after I left because I know that I would say I would predict they were moving in this direction. Mm -hmm. And then the teacher will email me or sometimes, oh, yeah, well, after that we went on this, 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 this. I was like, oh, you nailed it. That's exactly what I was expecting and, and what you would hope to see within that particular classroom. Right. Like I teach uh, very project-based and so there are some days where I'm doing a bunch of these strategies, and there are other days where I'm doing almost none, uh, with the exception of cell phone caddies and student ambassadors, what, how, why. Um, but you know, if students are working on a project and they know what they're doing and they're grinding through things, then they're in a bunch of different places mm -hmm. and doing their thing. And um, yeah, hopefully, actually, you know what? I hopefully they are challenging their own thinking. Well, yeah, I, I think um, it's just less teacher directed. Yeah, and you'll walk around and you'll ask and some I am questions. And I am attending to all students uh, all the time. So I notice you guys are doing this. Tell me more about that, you might say. Or uh, you need to put this clamp here if you're going to saw in this direction or right. cut in this direction. Safety goggles. So all of those things are important, a part of what we do when we, we teach. Um, it may not be in an education ease formal right. um, way, but it's still part of that process of um you know, modeling behavior like safety glasses, attending to all students, having those high expectations, or asking to justify their thinking. And sometimes the students will help each other. You see that often. And I saw that in an art class um, the other day, how they were kind of helping each other and commenting and critiquing um, at a very high level, I might add. Nice. Yeah, the more I think about it, the more it really, like, this applies across different pedagogies, mm -hmm. like whether it's direct instruction or small group work or project-based learning. Um, actually, you can hit just about all of them yeah. on a daily basis, and I think we do. All right. Yeah. Good job, us. <laughs> all right. With that, uh, Dr. Mark Sims, principal of San Marin High School, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your wisdom about uh, the science of teaching, uh, research-based best teaching practices, and San Marin's points of emphasis. I appreciate it. I enjoyed every minute of being here. Me too. Thanks for being here. You got it. <laughs>